We read sacred scripture this evening from two portions. First, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is where we turn to first. We pick up our reading at verse 17, reading through to the fifth verse of chapter 2, following which we'll turn to Ephesians 3, where our text is found. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. This is God's inspired word. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise and where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness, and in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not without enticing, was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. That's why we read in 1 Corinthians. Let's turn now to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3. And reading the first 13 verses. The text is the verses 7 and 8. Ephesians 
For this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body, and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Whereof I was made a minister, according to the gift of the grace of God, given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Wherefore I desire that ye faint not at my tribulation for you, which is your glory. Thus far we read from God's inspired word. Let me read the text once again. Whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God, given unto me by the effectual working of his power, unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we approach thy word, feed us thyself and speak unto us. Speak unto us the deep things of God clearly that we might lay hold of these things and that we might, hearing, these, hearing thy word, apply the lessons of thy word to our hearts and lives. Bless us. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. For this cause I, beloved congregation, the apostle is about to begin a prayer in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 3, when very abruptly and without announcement, a whole new line of thought emerges. Now the apostle does eventually get to that prayer, and you'll recognize it, that prayer that begins in verse 14, verse 14 which reads, For this cause I, just as in verse 1, For this cause I, but now bow my knees, unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Introducing that prayer that he's about to pray there. But now here in verse 1, 
It is for this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. And so, verses 1 through 13 of Ephesians chapter 3 is a spirit work, holy interruption to prayer. And as well also an interruption to a pattern that has been established in the first couple of chapters in the book of Ephesians, the pattern of doctrine followed by prayer. And so in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, the doctrine of the triune God's salvation of His people, Father, Son, and Spirit, Father, electing us in Jesus Christ, Son, redeeming us by His precious blood, Spirit, sealing us by His Spirit, and then followed by prayer in the verses 15 and following of chapter 1, And then again in chapter 2, the entire chapter is dedicated to doctrine. The doctrine of the amazing, astounding grace of God. The grace of God that saves His people, that frees His people from the bondage of sin. That's the first half of chapter 2. And it's that same grace also that brings the people of God together. It reconciles us to God. That's the first half of chapter 2. And it reconciles believers one to another. That's the second half of chapter 2. And now as chapter 3 begins, we might expect prayer. We're expecting prayer, but we don't get it till all the way in verse 14. Well, it's clear from verse 13 that the Holy Apostle had a deep, heartfelt pastoral concern for the Ephesian Christians. For he tells them there that he has a desire that they faint not. That is in our language today, that they do not lose heart. Why? Three reasons. Reason number one, the most obvious one, because he is in prison. Who is in prison? Paul, the apostle and missionary to the Gentiles. And that's a blow. It's a blow to the Christian faith. It's a blow to the mission work of the apostolic church, for Paul was a missionary to the Gentiles just as if it would be a blow to the Protestant Reformed churches in America if Reverend Smith and Klein would be lost to the jail cell in the Philippines. But then there's also reason number two. They might also lose heart, these Ephesian Christians, because of the sufferings of the apostle in prison. Sufferings which are spoken of by the word tribulations in verse 13. And still more, reason number three, they might lose heart and even take a guilt trip. For you see, what caused the apostles' imprisonment? Well, he had been with one Trophimus, the Ephesian, 
in Jerusalem when he was falsely accused of bringing him into the temple. You can read all about that account in Acts chapter 21 in the closing verses of that chapter. So, Paul says to them, don't lose heart. For the sufferings of mine, he tells them, are your glory. What astounding words. Those words, together with his self-identification in verse 1 as the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, brings up Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. Whence the Lord reveals this about Paul, who was converted from Saul, Saul who was on his way to Damascus to arrest and to persecute Christians. Acts 9, verse 15, But the Lord said unto him, to Paul, Go thy way, for he, Saul, is a chosen vessel unto me, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Verse 16, For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. You sense the irony there in these verses, beloved? Saul went to Damascus to arrest Christians. But on his way there, he himself was arrested by the grace of God. A grace that brought him into the Christian faith. A grace that also brought him into the ministry of the gospel. And for him, most uniquely as well, to be an apostle and missionary to the Gentiles. As he himself shares with us in the verses 1 through 13, that triple wonder of grace would make him a steward of the gospel especially for the Gentiles, to bring that gospel to them. And in the course of his labors, labors which he was exactly called by God unto, he would be with Trophimus the Ephesian, when he was unjustly arrested and imprisoned. So then, the Ephesian Christians should know that, therefore, there is absolutely no bitterness no blame and no self-pity on the part of the Apostle, but only honour and joy. Paul here could be heard hearing, saying to the Ephesian Christians, I am honoured and I am joyful to be where I am because of who I am. And because of what I have been called by God himself to do. I am exactly where I should be at this time in my life, in prison, according to the will of God. My sufferings, which were brought on me because of my apostleship to you, Gentile Ephesian Christians, bring you not disgrace, but glory, 
because it pleased God to work through my apostleship for you that you may no longer be held in bondage to sin. In other words, Paul embraced his calling. Paul knew who he was and Paul knew what he was called to do. And that was a truly liberating reality for him while in prison. Seeing things from a right perspective, focusing his mind on what's important, and enabling him to prioritize life's choices. Accordingly then, his sufferings on account of his calling from God to them should not create loss of heart for them, but instead are truly, truly for their glory. Text before us this evening, verses 7 and 8, reminds us that at the heart of those ministerial labors of the apostle that he was called unto is preaching. Preaching. And rightly so, and rightly so for many reasons, and contextually this evening in the book of Ephesians, for this reason. It is preaching which is the glue and connection between chapter 2 and what follows on in chapters 4 through 6. Preaching is the chief means by which members of the church of God are saved and gathered together. That's chapter 2. And once gathered together, are built up and edified by that same preaching. In the life that they are called to share together in Jesus Christ and in the manner described in the chapters 4 through 6 in the book of Ephesians. So consider with me then verses 7 and 8 of chapter 3 in the book of Ephesians this evening under the theme Consider with me, called to the ministry of preaching unsearchable riches. The call of God to the ministry, the work of the ministry, and the power that fuels the ministry. The call of God to the ministry is fundamental and absolutely necessary for one who would be minister. That call kept the apostle focused and strong in faith whilst he was in prison, as we have seen in the context. And that call fittingly appears right at the start of our text this evening. Verse 7, Whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God. Now, to be sure, the word call is not found in that verse. But though the word is not found there explicitly, the idea of it most certainly is. And that's found in the phrase, I was made a minister. Note here especially the passive voice. Paul was made a minister. Now when scripture adopts the passive voice and the passive voice in relation to Holy objects, holy persons, 
holy events know that it is very much telling us that it is God who is active. God who is the one causing something to happen. And here, God made Paul a minister. Not man, not the church, but God. God called him to the ministry. And this calling, you understand, is basic to a person's ministry, which is why the apostle, as a norm, begins his epistles in the New Testament declaring, declaring it right from the get-go. And so, for example, we read in Romans 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1 again, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, no one else but God. In a word then, this calling of God to the ministry is basically his credentials. His credentials from God himself, that he belongs to the office of minister. Without that, no one has the right to the office. One has not right to the office, and therefore also one has no right to the work of the office. But with it, one not only has the right to office, but also will have the ability to perform the work of the office, and this too, grow, grow in his abilities to perform the work of the office according to the gift of the grace of God. Well, since this calling to the ministry is so important, we do well to consider its various aspects this evening. Four things here. Number one, gifts. Gifts for the ministry. And that's fundamental to one who will be called to the ministry. And there are two categories of gifts. Natural gifts and spiritual gifts. First, natural gifts. What natural gifts? The gift of public speaking. The gift of intelligence. Linguistic gifts. A logical mind. Even the gift of leadership. Now, to be sure, they don't, they don't have to be taught much at all, as in, for example, our children scoring A's in their classes and A's in all of their subjects. Here, let's be certain, a B will most certainly do. For as the Apostle himself tells us in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2, that he certainly wasn't a top-notch speaker himself. So natural gifts. But besides natural gifts, there are also, and even more importantly, spiritual gifts for the ministry. What spiritual gifts? 
Well, one very significant, significant spiritual gift is staring us in the face in the text this evening. Did you see that, children? Paul, here's how Paul described himself, who am less than the least of all the saints. Notice, not the least of all the saints, not even that, less than the least of all the saints. That's how Paul sees himself and describes himself. So what's the gift here? Humility. Great, great humility is needed for the ministry of the gospel. Great humility, also great gentleness, gentleness toward the people of God, personal holiness, that's needed too. Wisdom, not knowledge. Wisdom, wisdom especially, which is the ability to adapt that knowledge from God's Word and to apply it, to apply it to the hearts and lives of God's people. Humility, gentleness, holiness, wisdom, so many spiritual gifts are needed, but the greatest of all these gifts would be congregation. You know the greatest of all the gifts, don't you? The most excellent one. Love. Ardent love. Love for him. Love for his word. And love for his people. To grow, to walk in and to grow in that word. Love. Love abounding in the heart of a man called to the ministry. These are the gifts then for the ministry. Number two, he who, who would be called to the ministry must also meet the qualifications of Scripture. And in my mind, the qualifications of elder in Scripture most certainly applies to the minister. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7 catalogs those qualifications. I'll read those verses. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, that is, a one-woman man, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, verse 6, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, those outside the church, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. 
Now, these timeless qualifications of God for elders directly also are to be applied to ministers who share so many responsibilities with the elders. So then, gifts, qualifications, and now number three, a growing confirmation of the call within the heart of a person. As he is guided, as he is moved by the Spirit within him, seeing those gifts and qualifications he has based on the Word of God. A growing confirmation within, within him that must also be supported by a growing confirmation by those around him. First of all, within his own family, his spouse, his children, if they're old enough to discern, his brethren, his elders, if he's in training for the ministry, his professors, over the course of living and life, throughout the, uh, throughout the wait for a call, that is, for the ministry. So that number four, the fourth, last but not least, the fourth aspect of the call that's most crucial is, of course, a real call from a real church. The Macedonian call to come over and help us. Those are the four aspects of the call to the ministry. And so I ask you, in relation to our ardent need and prayers for men for the ministry in our churches, I ask you personally, do you pray? Do you pray that God calls men for the ministry of the gospel in our midst? Do you pray? And then are you on the lookout for gifts among our young teens, young boys for the ministry? Parents, are you teaching and training your children to love the churches, to pray for the churches, to serve in the churches as much as they can, to recognize and develop their gifts for service in whatever area there is of need in the church? Do any of our young fathers have ministerial gifts and qualifications? You are encouraged to the ministry. And really at bottom, do you regard the ministry to be something desirable for yourself and for your sons. The main work of the ministry is preaching. That's implied by the text when it sets forth preaching as the sole work in verses 7 and 8 of Ephesians chapter 3. But what is implied in our text is made explicit in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 17. There the apostle writes under inspiration, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. The minister's main work is preaching, but to be sure, there are other proper works that he is called to perform 
in relation to it. And to be sure, those proper works do not include socializing with others, playing golf or sports with others, though these activities could be and ought be part of a minister's life only as because he is also a member of the congregation. Ministers are also members of the church. And as well, this too, they are called to minister to them, to the flock, by knowing the flock and relating to them as much as possible. To be sure, proper works of the ministry include administering the sacraments. We are known as minister of word and sacrament. Catechism instruction, Bible studies, leading in Bible studies, going from house to house with visits with the Word of God, and giving biblical counseling and guidance where needed. These are all some of the pastoral labors that a man is called unto. And all of that then tells us that the main work of preaching is and must be done in the context of a pastor pastoring, shepherding the flock he's called to pastor. So then, he must make every effort to know the sheep, to know them well, to understand them, to understand their needs, to understand their fears, to understand their challenges, to understand their gifts and the measure of the gifts that they have, as well as their strengths and weaknesses. And in light of that knowledge, shepherd, preach to the peculiar, particular needs, fears, challenges, strengths, and weaknesses of the congregation. He must do that according to the gift of the grace of God. For well, that being the case, since preaching is the main work, we ask the question now, what is preaching? Well, simply put, preaching is the official proclamation of the gospel in the service of Jesus Christ and on behalf of and by His church. In other words, first of all, the preacher is a church's man. A church's man called to bring the gospel to God's people. To preach literally, keruzo in the Greek, is to herald, is to be a herolder. It is to deliver God's message. Just as angels, literally messengers, angels are messengers, bringing the official message of God. The word herald, Keruzo, refers to the king's messenger delivering the king's official word and decree to the citizens of the kingdom. To preach is to herald, Keruzo in the Greek, and you understand is different from that other word, evangelizo, which has also been translated as preach 
in such a verse as Acts 8, chapter 8, verse 4. Acts 8, verse 4 reads, Therefore they that were scattered abroad, scattered because of persecution, went everywhere preaching the word. Now, to be sure, this refers not to members standing behind the pulpit and proclaiming the gospel. That word, preaching or evangelizo, speaks of members evangelizing. That's where we get the word evangelism. Evangelizing the gospel, giving witness of the gospel, giving a witness, speaking the gospel to others. These scattered and persecuted saints of Acts chapter 8, verse 4 were duly and obediently and zealously fulfilling their Christ-given mandate to do just that. And Christ gave that mandate just before He ascended into heaven, speaking to His disciples, Ye shall be witnesses unto Me in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the, of the world. Evangelism and missions and witnessing live in the hearts of these saints who were persecuted, saints in the early apostolic church, so that it's something basic and important also for us Today, New Testament believers in the New Testament church. And preaching there also has an important role to play in the support of the ministry of witnessing the gospel to the world. Preaching is to herald. To preach the gospel is to proclaim officially the message of God. And here that message is described as the unsearchable riches of Christ. Christ, focus on that word, that's how you get unsearchable riches. Christ, His name, His person, His works, heart of which is His cross, His death on the cross, of Calvary and his resurrection. Christ, who is the divine incarnate Son of God, who is infinite and therefore thoroughly unsearchable from the viewpoint of man. The preacher is to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. That that means then that the message has to be given by the king himself. The king himself has to give the knowledge of and insight to the word of God to the preacher. Through diligent prayer and study and by his spirit. There is simply no other way because these are un- Searchable riches, they're not searchable, they're not fathomable, they're infinitely deep riches we're speaking of here. The message is based on the Word. 
We preachers, of course, teach our catechumens at catechism class that the Bible is perspicuous. It's clear. That's true. Our children, young children, readily understand the Word of God. But at the same time, it's also deep. And you ask, how can that be? Think of a bright sunny day in summer. Summer is not too far away. I know it doesn't look like summer now, but it won't be long. Think of a bright sunny day and think of the fact that you are by a a beautiful lake. And you can see through the clear waters of the lake. It's clear. The waters are clear. The lake is clear. That much is clear and sure. But it's one thing to talk about the bottom of the lake, isn't it? Especially when the lake is deep. Well, God's Word is deep. The Word of God contains deep, unsearchable, infinitely deep riches, the riches of Jesus Christ. It contains his deep instruction. There's the deep meaning of his word. There are the wonderful truths of his word, the golden nuggets, the glories of God in Jesus Christ, as well as the glorious, penetrating applications to be made to God's people from the scriptures, to be revealed in the scriptures to the preacher. And it's the spirit of King Jesus that must needs reveal these things to the preacher. For it is not the man, but the spirit who searches the deep things of God. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 10. Nor is that all. The spirit of King Jesus must also give the preacher his unction. His unction as well as his anointing, so that when he preaches the word, he does so with authority, his authority. He does so with conviction, his conviction. And he does so in a proper way, with ardent love for the flock who is receiving the word. The Spirit must give all these things. And that leads well to my next point here in the sermon, which is this, the difficulty, even impossibility, of the work of the ministry. Difficulty, I said. I should have said difficulties, plural. What difficulties are there? Well, looking at the context itself of the passage, Children, where is the apostle right now? He's in prison. There are many challenges and difficulties to the ministry. As one who brings the gospel of God, he is a magnet of hatred for those who hate God and hate Jesus Christ and hate the message that he brings. Paul suffered on account of that for sure, and so does does every Christian and gospel minister. 
And looking at Paul's life, Paul suffered shipwrecks. He was beaten. He was persecuted. He was constantly living in danger because of the hatred against him and the gospel he preaches. And especially so as a lead soldier of Jesus Christ in his army in an ongoing battle with the enemies of God. Beloved, he's a leader, the minister is, a leader on the front lines, exposed to frontline dangers of battle. And we all know, know well the dangers of frontline battle, don't we? That's Paul, and that's the context of the passage. But to be sure, beloved, there are also other difficulties well known to us. What are some of them? Long hours. Long, long hours of labor. But still, the minister has the same responsibilities as you do as husband and father. I said long hours, but also weird hours. We ministers are on call 24-7 and you can never guess where a minister is sometimes in the wee hours of the morning. Weird hours, long hours, and yes, awkward labor. Sometimes we're put in awkward positions as we're called to minister the word and the gospel to the congregation. But besides that, the minister and his family lives in a glass house. Everyone sees their life and their living. Everyone knows him. He's a public figure and is visible to everyone. And besides, there are surprises in the ministry. And he must be prepared for anything and everything at all times in the ministry. And yet at the same time, he is a man with like passions and weaknesses just as you. I asked this question a while ago. I'm going to ask it again now. That being the case, beloved, do you still regard the ministry as something desirable for you and for your sons? Know, beloved, that these labors can at times be impossible, utterly impossible. And the burden and the load sometimes crushing. So, the minister needs to know and look for the power that fuels him in his ministry. What is that power? Let me read the text again. Whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. 
Verse 8, Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That power is the gift of God's grace given to him that made Paul a minister to begin with. And to be sure, it is that same grace that needs to be continually ministered and given to him so that he could preach the unsearchable riches of Christ among the Gentiles and minister to them. That's Paul. As with the apostle, so also with every minister down through the ages. Also, this one here today. Grace, grace continually flowing forth from the cross of Jesus Christ is continually needed for all the work of the ministry. This, of course, brings up the importance of prayer. Ora et labora. So taught my dear professor from seminary many, many years ago. That's Latin for pray and work. Note the order. Pray and then work. That's biblical. And so, pray I. but because even the great Apostle Paul asked for prayers from the Ephesian church for him, as we see it in Ephesians 6, verse 20, I too make the same request of you, beloved. Pray, but pray not only for me, but for every minister in our denomination. We are in great need of your prayers, that we may be effective instruments of His, to be building up His people, His church here on earth. And amid the challenging circumstances we face as a denomination, pray, pray, and in the way of prayer, May the Lord grant blessing to us all and be glorified by those prayers. Amen. Father in heaven, bless this word. Use it, Lord, that we may be renewed in our attitude towards the ministry of the gospel and to ministers. Use it also to the end that ministers be refreshed by it, him who brings it, anyone who hears it as well. We pray, Lord, that thou would be pleased to, in that way also, use it to build up our churches, even in a small way, to encourage us. O oh Lord, hear our prayer, for Jesus' sake.